one of the outstanding chapters in Isaiah. In our survey of this wonderful prophecy, hundreds of years before Jesus, we've um, gone from chapter to chapter, concentrating on key verses, but tonight, this whole chapter is a key chapter. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Uzziah was one of the good kings in Israel, one of the few, up there with David, Solomon, Josiah, Hezekiah, and he reigned for 52 years. Now, just think about that. When he died, there were people that never knew any other king, and they were already in their 50s. It's kind of like Franklin Roosevelt was elected four times. Last year, Queen Elizabeth died, and she had reigned something like 70-something years. She became queen, I think, the year that I was born. So there was national mourning everywhere, and probably worried, well, what do we do now? Who's going to be the next king? Will the Babylonians attack us because we're not quite settled yet. But in that very year, God had not died. And so Isaiah said, on that very year, to the very day, he says, I saw the Lord. And he sees the Lord in heaven. It does talk about the temple, but that's not the temple on earth. Exactly how he saw the Lord. Was this in a vision? Was he literally physically taken up to heaven like Paul and others? We don't know for sure, but that's not the major point. The main point is he saw the Lord. That's God. He saw him. Others have been given that great privilege, like Daniel, Ezekiel, Moses. Uh, the apostle John saw Jesus, saw God in the book of Revelation, and a few others, perhaps some that are not mentioned. But let me emphasize this, and I've said this before. Those were special privileges given to them then. Ignore people today that say they have seen God. Um, various fanatics. When I was young, there were the hippies, sometimes on LSD, saying, I got to see God. and said, no, you were hallucinating. And I've met people that say they think that they have seen God. And I said, no, you're either making this up or it was a delusion or... You know, people do hallucinate various things. But Isaiah did get to see God. But there's a, I guess you'd say, a theological problem here. Moses said, Lord, I want to see you. And God said, you can't see my face, for nobody can see my face and live. Why? Because you're still a sinner, even though you're forgiven. But my glory, my holiness would incinerate you. So he said, Moses... You'll see the back of me as I move away, but you can't see my direct face. But here Isaiah does get to see God. How? John 12, 41 gives us the unusual answer. Jesus spoke some things, and then John gave a, just a quick an, uh, analysis and said, these things he spoke about Isaiah when he saw Jesus. Wait, it says he saw the Lord. Jesus is God, and you could say he is the 
funnel by which God shows himself in everything. Colossians 1, he has a priority in these things. And you could say that Jesus filters out not the holiness, but the danger of God so that when people saw Jesus, they saw God. Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. But that's how they could see God and live. So Isaiah saw Jesus, who is God. He hadn't become a man yet, but uh, it was safe and is glorious. By the way, this is one of at least 100 proofs that Jesus is God. A friend of mine wrote a book along those lines. Jesus is God. And so here's, here's the way I put it. God said nobody can see God and live, but when you see God through Jesus, nobody can see God and die if they see him through Jesus. That's why when we get to heaven, we see God through Jesus. Did you know that? Jesus gave his apostles a little hint of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was bright light and glory. And that's just a glimpse of what it'll be like. Here, Isaiah groveled in humility and in fear, as it goes on to say. So did John the Apostle. You say, well, wait a second. How could John the Apostle be afraid when he saw Jesus in heaven? He's the disciple that, it says, the disciple Jesus loved. It was because though he was saved, he still had sinful nature in him. We do. It's called original sin. And he realized, like Isaiah, he still was a sinner. And so even though he saw Jesus that he knew and loved, he fell on his face. But I like that in Revelation 1. There he is afraid. And God just, Jesus just tapped him and says, don't, don't, don't be afraid. It's me. I'm Jesus. Same thing happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus. They were afraid. And probably begging, don't kill us, don't kill us. And it says, Jesus just touched him on the shoulder and says, do not fear. It is I. And they looked up and they saw just Jesus kind of veiled his glory looking like just a man. So if we were to go to heaven now, in our sinful state, we'd be like Isaiah and like John. However, the Bible says we will see God. When we, are, when we die or when we're raptured and we will be instantly transformed, have no sin in us, so that when we see God after we die or at the second coming, no fear, no groveling, but exquisite joy, love, and worship, more than what Isaiah experienced. That's, that's going to be wonderful. Don't you look forward to seeing God? Theologians call that the beatific vision. What does beatific mean? Well, you remember the beatitudes, Matthew 5. Uh, the word means something that's happy. Jesus said, blessed are you this, blessed are you that. Happy are you. Smile if you're being persecuted. You'll be greatly rewarded. Beatific means happy. So the theologians say, this is the essence of the happiness in heaven when we get to see God through Jesus, face to face, we'll be filled with greater joy than we can imagine. Okay, back to the text here. He says, I saw the Lord uh, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Now, um, this isn't a literal throne because heaven is not physical as such, but this is God's temple in heaven. High and lifted up means 
is exalted. God is now showing his majesty as it really is. We only see glimmers of his glory in nature. In heaven, we, we get the full blast. Like Isaiah says, he's high. That's his transcendence. He's lifted up and it's in his regal majesty. And it says the, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, you say the train, what does that mean? It would be like the long flowing robes of a king or of a queen. Uh, maybe you've seen the movies and, uh, of whatever when Queen Elizabeth became queen back in 1952. Long gown, just like some women with a long wedding gown. And uh, it's, it's saying that it's very long and it filled all of heaven. In other words, his majesty and glory fills everything in heaven. Heaven is God's temple. It's his home. It's his palace. It's his temple. And the temple on earth was meant to be like a little bit of heaven on earth where God would manifest his glory there in the temple. Well, now it's up in the real temple, up in heaven, and the purpose of a temple is to God to show glory and receive our worship. And the temple on earth started off as a tabernacle and became bigger with the temple. In the very center of it is called the Holy of Holies. That's the most holy place, as it's called in Hebrews. Heaven is the Holy of Holies of the entire universe. That's where God especially shows his glory. He shows his holiness and glory everywhere, but especially in the immediate presence of God there in heaven. Isaiah was given this great, great privilege. Then he begins to describe what he saw. Verse 2, he says, Above it, that is above the throne, stood seraphim. What is seraphim? The Hebrew word, it's in the plural because I am is the plural way of saying it in the Hebrew. So it's seraphs, seraphim. And literally the word means the burning ones. I like to call them the fire angels. Uh, Hebrews 1.17 refers to the uh, angels as ministers, as fiery ministers and messengers from God. Jesus called them holy angels. And holiness is often described in the Bible like burning fire. And so the angels here are burning with holiness. Now, in a way, uh, uh, all angels are burning in holiness, but this is the only time that they're called seraphim. This could mean a special kind of angel that is especially close to the throne of God. And you remember there are different ranks. Uh, it talks about principalities and powers, dominions, and so forth. They're cherubim also. They're guardian angels, but here it specifies the seraphim. Perhaps they're the same as those angels very close to the throne that are mentioned in Revelation 4 and 5. So he sees them as well, and we'll get to how he sees the six wings, but what else does the Bible say about angels, what they look like? They did not look like little cuddly Cupid-like beings with little tiny wings. You know, you see these pictures usually by medieval Italian artists. That's not what they looked like. When they occasionally appeared on earth, people said they were like really big soldiers with swords that looked dangerous. They didn't look like a little cupid, like a little cute animal or baby. Um, 
Matthew 28, 3, when Jesus rose from the dead and the women showed up at the tomb, they saw a couple of these. And it says in Matthew, they were bright like light, brighter than the sun. They were reflecting the glory of God. And it says it was like lightning, like lightning shooting out from them. Ezekiel 1.13 says that they, they, they glow like coals in a fire or like torches that are on fire, radiating the glory and the holiness of God. Then Isaiah said, um, each one had six wings. So that's where we think that angels fly, they have wings. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but remember, angels are spirits. They don't have a physical body, so this is symbolic language the idea that they have wings is that they can move. And we see in the book of Daniel, they move to different places just real, real fast. So they're spirits without bodies, just like in Ezekiel 1, it says some of these, they have eyes all over to look in front, behind, behind all around. But if they don't have bodies, this is symbolic as saying they know a lot more than we do. They see things we don't see. So with these six wings, two of them, they cover their face, Two of them, they cover their feet. Two of them, they fly. Now, they're flying back and forth, but they're right there at the, uh, at the throne of God. The idea is that they're flying, covering their face, covering their feet, but flying kind of like hovering. You ever see a hummingbird? You know, those wings real, real fast. You can, like, stand still and then go real quick. So it's something like that here. They're shielding their face because they're, they're overwhelmed by the glory of God. And yet Matthew 18, Jesus said that angels do see the face of God. So there's a bit of a paradox. They see, but they don't see everything. Some of you may, Jack, you know where I'm going with this. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass darkly. When we get to heaven, the veil is removed. We will see God more directly than even the angels do. We don't have to put wings in front of our face. And several verses say, we shall see God. By the way, do a study on that subject of the beatific vision. They shall see God. They will see face to face. We'll see him seeing us. So they shielded their eyes, but they did see. And then it says, with other two wings, they covered their feet. What's that got to do with this? Uh, again, symbolic. The oriental custom to take your shoes off. When I lived in Dallas, Texas, literally next door to Dallas Seminary, we, I had a, uh, right next to me in this, this little apartment building, there was a family of Chinese. In fact, they, they, fit, they fit so many into that apartment because they were used to overcrowdedness. They had like 15 people living in an apartment that was fit for two. But being from China, and they were Christians, I always noticed outside their, the front door, they'd line up all their shoes. Because the oriental custom is when you go to visit someone, you take the shoes off. And so you remember what God said to Moses, burning bush? Moses, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. And so it's something like that here. We're not told how many of these seraphim. Sometimes we think with just a few. And no, it could have been thousands of them. How many angels are there? Well, look up Daniel, Revelation, and other places. There are probably more angels than there are human beings at any one moment. So think in terms of not millions, but billions. And they all worship God. They all obey him. 
And some of them especially are given the job of staying close to the throne and just worship. Verse 3, one of the angels cries out to another uh, and hears their song. Now when it says cries, that could be that they are singing or chanting and they often do sing. For example, Job uh, 38 says that the angels rejoiced and sang when God created the physical universe. They also rejoiced in worship in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was born. Hebrews 1 says, uh, let all the angels of God worship him. Revelation 4 and 5, John records that all these angels are singing to God. And so it's interesting when you do a study on angels, how often they're described as worshiping and singing. And so that's why I think that when it says one cries out to another, they're they're singing out something to one another. Um, we've got a couple of musicians here. The singing back and forth uh, is sometimes called antiphonal singing. And this has been done different ways. Um, Brother James, we were talking about that. You've been in, in, in choirs like that where a whole bunch are singing and then one, one guy sings out one line and then they all echo it. And, and then it'll go back and forth. One verse, it'll be all the women. Another one, the men. Great variety. It's something like that here. One singing out and then another replies back and then they all sing together. For example, look what they're singing. It starts with what is probably the chorus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then the short verse. The whole earth is full of his glory. When you go over to Revelation, you see the same chorus but a different verse. So it could well be that there'll be the chorus over and over again, which is the main thing, and then added verses beyond what is recorded here. So let's look at what they're singing. Holy, holy, holy. That's where we get one of our most famous hymns, one of my favorite hymns. Holy, 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 Lord, God Almighty, or as it says here, holy is the Lord of hosts, host meaning of the angels, the armies of heaven. Let me show you another place that has something similar. So go to Psalm 99. There's several places in the Psalms which are singing that concentrate on the attributes of God and particularly the holiness of God, such as Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. That's similar to seraphim. Uh, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion. He is high above all the peoples, like it says in Isaiah. Verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Skip down to verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. He is holy. Verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. Notice three times he is holy, holy, holy. In uh, theology, this is called the trisagion. What does that mean? Tris means three, like in Spanish, uno, dos, tres. Tris, tris means three. Hagion comes from the Greek word for holy. Uh, some pronounce it hagios, but if you're from Greece, they'd say, no, it's hagios. Hayos, the G is very soft, Hayos. So I'll teach you a little bit of language. It's very important. Isaiah spoke Hebrew and he hears it in Hebrew. And the word holy there is that great 
a Hebrew word that even rabbis today will just say it in an awesome hush. It's the Hebrew word kadosh. And so here's Isaiah hearing the angel singing kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. But you go over to Revelation 4, 8, John heard him sing it in Greek. Because he spoke Greek and he wrote it out in Greek. What did he hear? Hios, hios, hios. Did they speak it only in Hebrew and Greek? No. Angels are far more knowledgeable than we do. I'm persuaded that they know many languages. And as they kept saying this, if there had been someone from Mexico there, you know what he would have heard? Sancto, Sancto, Sancto. French, Sanctus. Latin, it would have been Sanctus or German. Heilige, Heilige, Heilige. Perhaps all languages and also, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, the tongues of angels. They would have blended this all together over and over and over again. The subject is the holiness of God. What does holy mean? You men that go out and witness, ask somebody, do you know what the word holy means? Most of them haven't a clue. They'll say, well, you know, I was on vacation, I went to a Buddhist temple and I felt holy. No, that's anything but holy. That's paganism. And they say, well, what do you mean holy? Like, they'll use it in expletives, you know, holy this, holy that. And say, ooh, that's, that's desecrating this. What does it mean? It means pure, clean. And technically, at least in Greek, it means something that is separate. Jesus is described as holy, separate from sinners. Not that he doesn't love us, but he's different from us. Um, one of our conference speakers, oh, I guess 20-something years ago, was the great theologian D.A. Carson. And he preached on this passage, and he said something interesting. He said, holy meant separate from something that's dedicated to God because it reflects his holiness. And he gave illustrations from the temple. And he said, look in the temple, there were certain holy things. Uh, and he said, for example, they would uh, burn the, certain sacrifices and they'd collect the um, ashes with a holy shovel. And he'd say, what's holy about a shovel? Well, it was made out of gold, but he said it was holy because it wasn't to be used for anything else other than the worship of God. And he says it was like that with other such things. Holy water is not Catholic magic water. It was water that was separate and only to be used in the worship of God. So he drew the conclusion. Holiness simply means something that directly refers to God in his worship. It is to be holy. 1 John 1, 6 says, God is light and in him is no darkness. 28 times in Isaiah, God is called the Holy One of Israel. Now notice it's said three times, holy, holy, holy. There are two main interpretations of this, and I think both of them are correct. It's, not, it's like what we call a double entendre, a double meaning. One of them says this is the superlative. Now if you remember your high school grammar, you've got the simple comparative and superlative, like good, better, and best. And so several times in Bible language and in Middle East, when they repeat something three times, it's saying, this is the best, the most. Another way of doing that is like, holy of holies, song of songs, vanity of vanities. But another one is to say it three times, such as in Jeremiah 21, 27, 22, 29, and Revelation 8, 13, certain things are repeated three times. 
as if to say it's a superlative. But there's another interpretation. The threeness of God, what we call the Trinity. It's, and I remember I had a teacher at Bible college, and oh, Dr. Harrison, and sometimes he'd refer to this in a very dignified way that only those that have the gray hairs can do. And godly man, he'd say, holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Holy Spirit. Still remember that 50 years later. And that's what he's doing here. How, how can I say this is talking about the Trinity? Notice later, God says in verse 8, who shall I send, that singular, who will go for us? There's a singularity and a plurality of God. What do we call that? The Trinity, one God in three persons. So I think that's included, and you also see that in the parallel in Revelation 4.8. Revelation 4.8, there's that same chorus, holy, 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 and a new verse is added, perhaps more and more. By the way, I'm going to say something. I think only Logan would follow this, maybe Jack. Uh, you have different manuscripts of the New Testament. The vast majority of them are called the majority text. And in Revelation 4, 8, where it says, holy, 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 the vast majority of the manuscripts don't have it three times. They have it nine times. Holy, 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 and so forth. As if to say, they keep saying this, and that's exactly what Revelation says. They never cease over and over again. Now, Let's camp at that for just a few moments. How much time had he lapsed between Isaiah and when John heard the same thing, seeing the same thing? They were like 700 years. For 700 years, these angels have been singing that same song, never getting tired of it. There's a great lesson in that. Josh, that'll preach. The glory of God, His holiness, is cascading in this revelation and they are so caught up with they just keep singing it as more is revealed to them, not boring, is exciting and exhilarating spiritually, transforming them. But not just those 700 years. They'd been doing it from the moment of their creation hundreds of years before this. And then Revelation 4 didn't end it. They'd been doing it the last 2,000 years. And this is their high privilege to sing to God over and over again about his holiness and then enter all eternity and so will we. We will join this singing as we view God and his holiness and we will be singing holy, holy, holy. Our worship should be like the angels in heaven. As Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should sing to God reverently like these angels, concentrating on God. Look up the songs of the angels in Daniel, Revelation, a little bit in Ezekiel. It's God-centered. Our service needs to be God-centered. And even our singing, our meditating, even our silence should be God-centered. It should be holy worship and also Trinitarian. So looking at the verse, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. Now they were in heaven, but they move around on earth and see his glory. You might say, I don't see too much glory out there. It's because, first off, creation has been affected by sin, but the glory of God is still there. He does reveal himself in nature partially, enough 
so that people know there's a God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. But it's there with just glimmers. By the way, the same thing is said in Numbers 14, 21. It says that in the future, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. So why do we explain this? We see only some of it now. It's there. The angels see more of it because they don't have sin and they can see things that we can't. But one day we will not only see God face to face, we will see his splendor and glory everywhere throughout the universe, back on earth. The, the whole cosmos is filled with the glory of God. That's why he created everything, is to display his glory. The great John Calvin said in about half a dozen ways, he said that the universe is the theater of God's glory. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens are the handiwork of God. God says, I made that to show my glory. Now, this is just one of God's many great qualities, his holiness. And that's what's particularly emphasized in Scripture and in this beatific vision. Let me ask you, friends, when you think of holiness, do you love holiness? I mean, love it and want to be holy. Let's get more precise. Holiness is not just some impersonal principle. It is an attribute of God who is holiness. He is holy. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He displays holiness. Do you love God who is holy? Do you love him because he is holy? Non-Christians don't. They hate holiness. They hate God. Christians do love God who is holy. And that includes Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 now. The posts of the door of this heavenly temple were shaken. Again, this is symbolic language because it's not a wooden door. By the voice of him who cried out. Now, that's not, as some would say, well, that's the angel, verse 3. No, it's probably God because we see from later on it's God speaking. And the house, heavenly home of God, was filled with smoke. The post shook like, like it's an earthquake and we find that sort of description in Revelation. Revelation describes heaven as very loud and very physical, shaking with thunder and lightning going off, just like at Mount Sinai when God came down and gave the Ten Commandments. What's this about smoke? Oh, you, some of you Bible students know what that is. It's that glory cloud that appeared in the wilderness to the Jews, and it looked like a cloud, it looked like smoke. Mount Sinai, it was a smoky mountain, as it were. But the, it was the Shekinah glory of God. It was like, picture, have you ever driven at night and it's fog everywhere and then you have your car headlights, it illuminates the fog. That's what is going on here. It's filled with this smoky cloud, this part of the revelation of God's holiness and glory. Same thing in Revelation 4, 5. And then he spoke, the voice of him. And the Jews gave this a term, the bath kol. Literally in Hebrew, that means the daughter of the voice. So Isaiah both heard and saw God. Wouldn't you love to have been there with him? Seen and heard just what he did? We will. This is a foretaste of what we will see and hear and feel when we get to heaven. 
We've got a glorious future beyond what we can imagine right now. Wonderful. Now look at Isaiah's response, verse 5. Woe is me. Now that's almost a surprise. You'd think he'd say, hallelujah, boy, it's good to be here. Oh, no, he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Even though he is a prophet, I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. In other words, I've told dirty jokes. I've sworn. I've taken the Lord's name in vain. And he says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why does he respond like this? The angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. He is saying, unholy am I. Woe. Earlier in, in uh, Isaiah, he had pronounced on God's behalf woes to various people. Woe this, woe that, woe this. Jesus said that. Now he is not just saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He's saying, woe to me. There's a lesson there for us. We should announce God's woe to people that are still in their sins, but always say, I am still a sinner. I am I'm justified, but I'm not thoroughly sanctified yet. Now here's a lesson. Put this in your heart and take it home. The closer we approach God in His holiness, it's a dangerous business. Because the more we see of His holiness, the more we see our unholiness. Somebody say amen. You know just what I'm talking about? You ever had holy moments where you feel like you're on the very threshold of heaven? What do you sense? Well, you should sense glory, love, power, Especially holiness. God is near. God is holy. And that should produce this humble penitence. Like Isaiah. Lord, it's dangerous for me to get that close. You've heard R.C. Sproul write and speak on this. I heard him several times in person. And he said, it's a strange thing you feel. That on the one hand, you're like repelled by this. Like Isaiah, I'm... I'm you know, the Jews would start pounding on their heart like they do at the wailing wall. No, no. And they start, oh, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy. But he says also, it not only wants to repel you, it draws you. Why? Because you're his child. And something in you, the Holy Spirit, draws you to God. So we should worship God with humility and repentance. Verses 6 and 7, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. Symbolic language of the coals from the altar. It's symbolic, but there's something physical about it because Isaiah was up there and it burnt. Think about this, you know, we have senses and sensation and nerves throughout our bodies. Some is especially tender, like our fingertips and our lips. When we kiss somebody, we use our lips. We don't you know, use our toes. We use our lips because they're especially sensitive. And that's what God put this coal on. Don't you know it hurt? Mm. You ever burnt your lips or your tongue on some hot soup? Or something like that. Or you know, if you're stupid enough to smoke tobacco and an ash falls in your mouth, it's going to burn. Here, God intentionally did that. And it probably had a little puff of smoke. And I imagine Isaiah, you know, tears coming down his uh, eyes. It, it, it burnt, but it was good. God sometimes has to do something for our good that hurts. Now, you remember my little formula on that. Uh, he will hurt us, but he'll never harm us. 
It's like a parent will spank a child and it hurts, but it's not to harm him. He has to know how far he can go without causing grievous bodily harm. So this hurt him, but it was for his good. Like a doctor will say, you know, I have to hurt you in order to heal you. And it does sometimes hurt, and then the after effects of that. What this is getting at is that he felt the conviction and the cleansing. They go together. There's no cleansing without conviction. Conviction should lead to cleansing. It's good for us. And so it says, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. If you want to believe in purgatory, here it is. But this is symbolic language. Purging means cleansing. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord. Remember, this is God speaking. And then God thunders. Who shall I send and who will go for us? Us, I think, is referring to the Trinity. Some say, no, that's the angels. No, no. Genesis 1, uh, we find the us. You know, we, they are made in our image. It's talking about God, the Trinity. And so it's notice the, plural, the singularity and the plurality. Who shall I send who will go for us? It's in the form of a question. He's asking for a volunteer. You might want to say, duh, there's angels. They'll go, but no. This is a leading rhetorical question. He's trying to elicit the positive answer from Isaiah. It's just like after Adam sinned, and Adam and Eve hid in the bushes, and God said, Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was. He was trying to get Adam to step forward and say, here I am. And that's exactly what happened here. Who will go for us? Who will I send? Do I have a volunteer here? Who will go? This is Isaiah's call. You hear about preachers and missionaries that say, I got the call to go. But God calls all Christians to go. The Great Commission, go into all the world. Now that might mean as a missionary to another country or simply your field that God has put you in, your neighborhood, your family. That's your mission field. Go. Are you going? And so what's the response? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. By the way, it's the same phrase when God called little Samuel. He said, well, here I am. I picture him, he's still afraid, even though his sins have been purged. And God's saying, who's going for us? And Isaiah, I'll go. You ever see a little child sometimes step forward and volunteer for something that other children are afraid to do? Isaiah said, I'll go. You've given me this great privilege. I'll go. You're probably thinking back on earth, who else would volunteer? He said, I'll go. And I, I've been touched by hearing some Christians say, I'll go. It's going to be dangerous. I'll be laughed at. And, you know, it's but I'll go. Good attitude. So he volunteers. He says, send me. And God speaks to him, verse 9, go. Tell this people, when you go back to earth, speak to your fellow Israelites and say this, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. What's that? That's part of his message. What he is saying is like what he said to Ezekiel. You go and tell them this, but I'm going to tell you in advance. They're not going to believe you. They're not going to listen to you. They'll hear you, but they won't understand They'll see you standing in front, but they don't perceive this. Why? Because spiritually, they're blind and they're deaf. Do we know what that's like when we witness to people? It's almost like you're speaking another language to them. Right? Matt, you ever have that happen? You witness to someone? 
How about the two mats? <laughs> I had two stones, two mats with one question. You talk to someone, and they look at you like you're crazy. They say, we talk about God. I don't see God. Get out of here. So God tells them in advance, and he tells us in advance, go anyway. In fact, it says in Ezekiel, go, then I can listen to you, but don't worry. You, you obey me, and you go and talk to them. More explanation in verse 10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand and, uh, with their heart and return and be healed. What's going on here? He's doing more than simply saying, you go and then I can listen. What he's saying is, I'm going to send you, I'm going to harden their hearts. I'm going to put a blindfold over their eyes. This is a great... Uh, reformed doctrine of the hardening of sinners that are reprobate. We find this analogy in Romans 9. The hardening, God does that. It's judicial hardening. They already got hard hearts, but God uses the gospel. This is, this is, this is strong wine. That God uses the good news of the gospel to save those that have been elected, but also to harden those that are not elected, and they go along with this. Make the, and this is referred to several times in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew 13 and Romans 9, Romans 10. That they will hear, but they don't hear. Why? It says that you, by the preaching that I send you to uh, Isaiah, that's going to make their ears heavy, that is uh, deaf, and shut their eyes, lest they see with eyes. It's almost as if God said, if I don't do this, they just might believe, but I haven't chosen them, so I am going to harden their hearts, blind their, and this will prepare them for the judgment they deserve. This is, as I said, strong stuff. Got a whole chapter on hardening in my book on Calvinism. Look at his response, verse 11. Lord, how long? Look that up. You find that several times in the Psalms. David said, Lord, how long? How long is this going to last? Just like when we are persecuted or afflicted. Lord, how long? And so God answers, how long you keep preaching until the cities are laid waste and without habitation, the houses are without man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, but a tenth of them will be in it and will return, in other words, a remnant, and will be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down so the holy seed shall be its stump. What he's saying is, you go and leave the, the end to me. You're going to keep going until the Babylonians come in and decimate Israel. You keep preaching, Isaiah. You keep prophesying in my name. How does that apply to us? Let's keep telling people the gospel until Jesus comes and decimates the world with judgment. He hadn't ha that hadn't happened yet. So just keep witnessing to people. You say, how long? Until you die or that person dies or until Jesus comes. And when he comes, it'll be far more decimating than the Babylonian invasion. Isaiah asked a question and God gave him a very quick answer. And then at the end of the chapter, the vision's over. Isaiah's back on earth. It was probably a vision, not a dream, so he didn't wake up, but somehow he's back on earth. wonder what he thought. Did he think, did I make this up? Was that a hallucination? No, it can't be. He's back on earth. And then, you know, you tell a story to a child and you pause and they'll say, and then? And then what happened? And then what happened? 
He brought the message God had told him to do. Think about that. He actually obeyed God. He could have said, no, I'm not, I'm not. he could have been like Jonah. I'm not going, you know, they're going to roast me. He obeyed God. He brought the message, and that's the rest of the book of Isaiah. God may have given them additional visions and additional revelations for the rest of the book, but thank God he did do what God said. He said, you know, who will go for me? He said, I will. God said, okay, here's the message. Go. Thank God that he did, and so should we. What's our lesson personally? Let us see God by faith. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. One day we will see God. I liked how Augustine put it. This isn't in my notes. This is fresh bread from the oven. God said we walk by faith, not by sight, but the reward for that is that we get to see what we believe now. Think about that. So let us go by faith and tell the gospel until the second coming or until we die and then we see God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Isaiah 6 and the promise that we will get to see you face to face one day. Meanwhile, help us to worship you, you that is holy, holy, holy. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.